Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. This will be part two of an impromptu two-part sermon. Through this section of text, in light of the fact that last week, I was going to say we didn't get through it, but I didn't get through it. It wasn't your fault. But I do hope that uh, as we pick it up again, you will have not uh, lost too much of the context. And so uh, what I'm going to do is just remind you as we get into it of really the nature of the book of Hebrews, why it is being written, to whom it is being written, and, and why this section in particular is of su- such great importance. Uh, we've entitled this A Perfect Church. It's really the fourth in a series that we started and talking about Christ our substitute, and the result is that he gathers together a church, and that church, while filled with sinners and certainly filled with imperfection, in fact, something I'm reminded of every single week as we gather, there are lots of things that we do that are imperfect. But underlying all of that, there is a perfection. There is a perfection in the sense that it is complete. And it is complete because what Christ did is complete. And therefore, those that are in that body, in that church, in Him, clothed in His righteousness, represent to a watching world those who have received the ultimate gift. And so we want to make sure that we model that appropriately. As I mentioned last week, there are some who approach the church as a place where really nothing but the sin is promoted, where nothing but their badness is promoted, where they come away believing that the only real purpose in being there is to acknowledge the fact that Jesus died for their sin, and therefore it depresses them when they think of the sacrifice He had to make for them and the badness of their own heart. I gave you a rather extended quote last week from somebody uh, who had basically gone through this for most of her early childhood in the church. In fact, she was so consumed with the reality of her own sin that she came away from that meeting, that gathering, believing that the only purpose of it was to engage in a transaction with God where she repents of her sins and He grants her forgiveness, and she goes away not lifted up by the joy of forgiveness, but burdened by the reality of sin, and therefore responding that if you were to ask her a question about what it means to repent, she would have said, quote, to feel really, really bad about what a sinful person you are. And the argument that we began to develop last week was that in any Christ-centered church, it falls to the elders and to the leaders and to the teachers and to the disciplers and to the counselors of that church that they foster a culture where that individual, instead of being burdened by the reality of her sinfulness, would be lifted up and encouraged by the reality of Christ's forgiveness. And that his death, therefore, becomes a comfort and not something that depresses you. It is true that on account of the death of our sovereign, that on account of the death of our Lord, it is true that he does not lay in state that we might pass by observing him dead looking back on what He has done with reminiscence, looking back on what He has done with nostalgia, looking back on what He has done even with a degree of thankfulness, but no hope of resurrection. We don't pass by with that. Instead, He returns in resurrected form 
revealing himself in his new body to his followers, and then ascending into heaven to sit down on the throne with the Father, interceding for us and promising to return, showing that he has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. And so it is that kind of encouragement that we can then bring to one another when we gather in the church. Because, as we said earlier, it is not just a time where the ministry of the Word comes from the pulpit to the people, but a ministry of the Word where the people serve the people in the way that they engage in hymn songs and spiritual songs, building up one another, encouraging one another to love and good deeds. That's the reason for the gathering. And so as we try to explain that in, in more detail It is this contrast that we want to emphasize at our church, that we assemble to worship, and worship happens when you know that you're forgiven. Now, there are three sort of objectives in this perfect church, and they're listed for you in the bulletin. If you have one, you can look at that. It's a very simple outline. There are three objectives. The first is to remind, the second is to rescue, and the third is to reassure to remind, to rescue, and to reassure. And the earlier part about the reminding is what we just talked about. It comes from verse 19 through 25. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you could say, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, that new heart, that Jeremiah 31 new covenant heart, and do so in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Whether it's the internal or the external, uh, it has been covered by the sacrifice of Christ, cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ. We wear on our bodies the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice who laid himself down for us. When a priest killed an animal, it was a messy business. In our rather sanitized world that we live in, our culture, our time, when we acquire something for ourselves that used to be alive, it typically is presented to us on some styrofoam plate, shrink-wrapped, Uh, in a refrigerated section of the grocery store with a label on it identifying what type of animal it is and what part of said animal is represented there because we wouldn't know to look at it. All it looks like to us is this large piece of meat. Now, it wasn't too long ago when people knew exactly where it came from because they watched it get produced and they watched it get raised They watched it get slaughtered, they watched it get butchered, and they watched it get cooked. And what that taught you over time was that this animal is a living creature, and the living creature dies when somebody kills it, and one of the indications that it's being killed or dead is that the blood goes out. It was not uncommon for priests by the end of their service to literally be covered in blood, the blood of the animals that they were killing. Larger animals created even more blood. When those major arteries were cut with the knife that the priest used to kill the animal, blood didn't just ooze out. It shot out of the animal, and it covered everybody and everything within several feet. Now, that's somewhat of a disturbing image for some of you, 
you're thinking, this, is, this sermon's not going well. <laughs> but, but I mean to disturb you a little bit. I, I think the author to the Hebrews wants to disturb you a little bit. Because the sprinkling almost sounds like a pleasant thing. Like it's a little anointing. Like you come in and somebody dips their fingers in some water and they just, they sprinkle you. They just sort of, you go, oh, I've been sprinkled. It's like like throwing confetti. But the sprinkling imagery here is that you are literally doused, covered, splattered with the blood of the sacrifice. And in that there is the ultimate cleansing. And so the author goes on to remind us of this. And he says that you have been both cleansed by the sprinkling and washed with the water. That was another imagery. There was a large area where the priests would wash themselves. They would cleanse themselves both figuratively and literally. And therefore, we hold fast to the confession, to to what we agree on, to what we have stated. And our hope is unwavering because he is faithful in everything he has promised. And let us consider then how to stir one another up, to, to literally provoke one another, uh, that word used only here in Acts 15, 39 of the, of the great divide that happened between Paul and Barnabas, the fight, the argument that they had, uh, that intense kind of provoking of each other. We do that, but we do it here in the church, not to offend one another, but instead to provoke one another to love and good works. And therefore, we don't neglect assembling together as had become the habit, the culture, the ethos of some of those people, but we encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. You see, back then, the people were encouraged to gather together because persecution had come. It's not like today, where you're encouraged to gather together because you've got alternatives that you find more appealing, because you'd rather be entertained, because you'd you'd rather do recreation. It wasn't like that back then. This verse really does not apply for us. It's not something we can utilize. It's not a tool that I should have in my belt. It should be taken away from me. I don't have the right to use it because the circumstances here don't warrant that kind of encouragement because there is nothing really that justifies not gathering together on the Lord's day. There isn't any persecution. There isn't really any inconvenience. But here you will notice that they are called in because of the persecution. And notice what he says. All of this is happening as the day draws near. What's the day? It should be capital D in your translation. It is the day. The day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And what he wants to say to them is, don't be like those who the Apostle John says left us because they were never part of us. Departed because they were really never believers to begin with. Don't be like them because when that day comes, you don't want to be seen as an adversary of King Jesus when he returns. So there's a lot of context that we have to really deal with here to understand it clearly. And in this coming together was a precious time of worship that was not possible for most of the Jews in that day and for none of the Gentiles. The temple was a place where they went to transact their spiritual business and do their spiritual banking. It was not a place where you went to gather together with other believers to worship. That happened, but it happened through festivals and feasts. The actual work at the temple was rather exclusive. A family representative went, and that only a male, and that only a Levite to get close, and that only a Levite who was serving as a priest at the time to be able to actually even see the sacrifices being offered. All the women and children and Gentiles and the rest of the household waited back at home, hoping, believing, but never really knowing that their sins were atoned for. 
Brothers and sisters, you're invited to come together on a weekly basis on the Lord's Day to be reminded of that. The reason that we gather is to remind one another because you have spent the last six days being relentlessly interrogated by your adversary, being relentlessly accused by your adversary, and if you're honest, oftentimes losing the battle of confidence and assurance. And we need to gather together weekly to be pointed back to that empty cross and to be reminded that our Savior not only rose from the dead but ascended and is returning and on that day will preserve us until the end so that when He comes, He may grant us the reward. The reward that comes not from our effort but the reward that comes from His grace. The deepest atonement was made for those who were not able to witness it happening in that old system But for us, the once and for all perfect atonement was made, and we gather together each week to be reminded of it. And that is why there is no altar here. The price is paid, and that sacrifice has been made. And the privilege of encouraging one another is what we enjoy every Lord's Day. That is why we remind you. Now, let's look at the second and third points for this morning. That was just kind of review. Number two, rescue. There's a rescue that is involved. Now, let me begin by saying that lifeguards are a part of our culture. Uh, unless you're visiting with us from some other state or some other part of the state, uh, those of us who live here, lifeguards, it's part of just living in San Diego. I mean, after all, we all see them almost every day. Uh, we spend a lot of time at the beach. We're under their watchful eye. Uh, it is this uh, select group of these, you know, bronzed fit, young, vibrant, athletic, attractive, red shorts wearing men who watch over our bodies and souls. They are there for a very particular reason. They are there to watch over us. They are there to warn us. They are there because should the need arise, they are going to rescue us. When we are in danger, they leave the safety of the tower and they come down, they condescend to be with us in the water and bring with them the means by which to rescue us and return us to safety. Beloved, in much the same way, this gathering is a place where you are reminded and rescued from time to time. Rescued by being brought something that is your only hope. You don't cling to the lifeguard. If you cling to the lifeguard, you both drown. But you cling to what he brings or she brings. And in this case, it's bringing you this message, bringing you this reminder of salvation in Christ. Hold on to that the author would say. Now look at verses 26 to 31 as the author to the Hebrews explains it. He begins this way, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge, which by the way is an existential knowledge, there's two words for know in the Greek language. One is objective, intellectual. The other is existential. You've experienced it. And so he says here, you've experienced it. You have received the experiential, existential knowledge of the truth. And if you go on sinning, there is no sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Now, once again, I want to remind you that these warning passages are often taken out of context. Every time you take a verse out of context, it's usually some kind of pretext to a proof text of whatever you're trying to communicate and has become your agenda. And it's lifted out, and it is used oftentimes to bludgeon people or to cause them to fear, or worse yet, to cause them to doubt their salvation, which is the exact opposite of what the author intends here. That is the case with every warning passage. And if you've been listening through the series, you'll know that's how it's always been taught. It's in a context. Therefore, we don't drop into this section alone. We have to understand what came before it and what comes after it. And what came before it is the reminder that they are in this assembly that is reminding one another of the finished work of Christ. What comes after it, as you'll see, is the reassurance that he doesn't believe any of them are in this category, but in the middle is a real warning, a real warning that if you don't abide by it, there is risk. If you are on the shoreline and you are about to go into the water and the lifeguard comes up to you and he says, you can't swim in there today because of the riptide, and you disregard the warning, and you go out and you get dragged underwater and drown, well, then you have violated the warning. However, if you hear the warning, and with humility and wisdom say, thank you for letting me know that, turn around and don't go into the water, guess what? You've avoided the warning. The warning doesn't really apply to you. The consequences don't apply to you because you've heeded the warning. Brothers and sisters, heed the warning this morning. That's the only call that I have to you. That's the only charge I bring. Considering that the day is drawing near, as we saw in the previous section, we need to pay careful attention to our lives. Genuine followers of Christ want to honor Him with their lives. They want to do the good works that the Spirit produces. They actually want to obey. They want to please Him. They want to know that He receives their sacrifice as an act of worship. They want to know that He gets glory from them. That's, That's what we do. That's what we want. That's our goal. The great John Owen said this, I think it's very important, if, if, there's, if there's something I just constantly want to go back to in our church, and if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here, but um, this might not be something that you're used to hearing, so just take it as something that we at this church are constantly being reminded of. And it's this, it's the danger of, of replacing genuine holiness with self-righteousness. And and the great John Owen put it this way, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. What Owen is saying is that if you do something out of your own strength, to reach your own standard, to create your own righteousness, you have created a false religion. And it's the basis of every false religion. There is an expectation, then, that we are looking forward to the return of Christ. That is what we long for, not because we have created in ourselves some kind of self-righteousness that we think He is going to accept, but because we are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which means we're indwelt by the Spirit, which means we have His righteousness. Now, please notice, if our Lord has spoken both clearly and honestly, and He has, then His return is to judge the living and the dead. 
and specifically to consume his adversaries. So we don't want to be counted among his adversaries. If there's anything we take away from this section, it is that you don't want to be an adversary of God. You don't want to be in a position where you're his enemy when he returns, because there will be no battle. There will be just an instantaneous wiping out of those who are not his. So, how do you make sure you're not an adversary of Christ? Well, it's quite easy. It's the same way that you know you're not an adversary of anyone else. An adversary is someone that you're against or someone that you're hostile towards. And you are against Christ when you are against the truth, especially the truth that you have not only known but experienced. As we said earlier, again, this knowledge was an experiential knowledge, an existential knowledge. You know it. You really know it. In fact, you know it so well, you know better. You ever use that phrase on somebody? You say, you should have known better. What do we mean by that? We mean not only do you you know the truth, but man, you've experienced it. You've, You've done enough to where you know that this was a bad decision and you did it anyway. You should have known better. Now, we've talked about this. You've experienced this. And so the author here, not to scold the people, but to remind the people that by God's grace, they have experienced his grace. They've experienced forgiveness. They've experienced all the good things that come from being with his people in his body. They're the ones then that cannot be his adversary. How could they turn on him? After everything he has done for them, how can they turn on him and be his adversary? Now, in case this isn't clear to people, he wants to give you a simple illustration. Look at verses 28 through 31. Remember, he's writing to Jews. Put yourself in the shoes of the Jews. They're the ones that are being addressed here. They're the ones with all the background cultural knowledge. See, we have to adapt ourselves to what they understood. So so this illustration, that might not work for you, but it would have been very, very specific for them. They, They would have known exactly what this author is talking about. So look what he says. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and is outraged? Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Please notice the author's logic here. He isn't being emotional, he isn't manipulating them. He's not trying to give an an illustration to tug at their heart. He's going straight to their mind. He's going straight to their intellect, their reason. And he's going to make an argument based on the theocracy that they understood and lived in. He says, if under the old system you disregarded the law, then you died on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you disobeyed the law and two or three witnesses testified against you, Capital punishment was the result for certain crimes. And therefore, you are not to bear false witness according to the ninth commandment. It's not just a commandment not to lie, but a commandment not to kill. Because the power of death was in the hands of the witness, 
and a false witness could lead to the death of the accused even if they were innocent. The seriousness of the ninth commandment and the reason why God's moral law remains upheld is that when you bear false witness against somebody, you have the power to not only destroy their reputation, not only to undermine their character, but in certain contexts to cost them their lives. And I know that what we want to believe is that if anyone ever did that to me, God would defend me. If anyone ever lied about me, God would defend me. Because I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I might not be perfect, but I'm innocent. And we all know the difference, don't we? We all know what it's like to be a sinner, but to have a clean conscience. In fact, like most of us, if somebody accuses you of something, you think, well, that's what you know, but I could tell you far worse things. The reality is we know the depth of our sin, but we also know that there are times where we're simply accused of stuff that isn't true. And we like to believe that, that God will defend us. Something will happen in the end that will rescue us from this. And yet, I need to remind you that the testimony of Scripture gives us many examples that don't end well for the people falsely accused. During the week, I had the privilege of going back into the Old Covenant and enjoying the reality of this topic as it unfolds in spectacular narratives. And there are a few that I wanted to bring to your attention this morning that I think you might find relevant. The first one comes in 1 Kings chapter 21. If you're not familiar with the Scriptures, in the Old Testament we call it the Old Covenant, there were three books that were predominantly the history of Israel from the time of the last prophet and the last one that brought in the, the kingdom all the way to really the, the exile. And what you have are the combined books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And Chronicles, at the end of it, really wraps up with the uh, information that launches us into what 400 years later began the New Testament or the New Covenant. But in these three uh, history books, there are many fantastic accounts that are just better than anything that Hollywood could produce. Uh, the storylines, the characters, and unfortunately, many of the worst characters, the worst behaviors, the greatest misfits are actually the ones who are in positions of leadership and authority, quite often kings. And one of the most wicked kings in, in all of the scriptures is a man named Ahab and his equally, if not more, wicked wife, Jezebel. You know, there are certain people that are so wicked in the scriptures that, like, nobody wants to use their name afterwards. I don't know that you have too many friends named Jezebel. You might call her Jezebel, but her name's not Jezebel. You don't have too many, like, buddies named, well, there were some people, I guess, named Ahab, but, you know, very few. Judas, you know. There aren't a lot of names out there that people want to draw our attention and remind us of, and, and Ahab is one of them. But the story in 1 Kings chapter 21 is what I want to draw your attention to, because King Ahab one day finds a field that he wants to buy because he wants to plant a garden, and it's right close to his existing house. And, and, and he goes to the owner of that property, and, and this man's name is Naboth, and, and he goes to this man and he says, I want to buy your property. And, and this man had a, a rare virtue, which is being able to speak truth to power, and he said, no, because that's not how it works in our civic system here. That's not how the law works. I mean, this is my family's 
land. It was given to us, and I can't just sell it to you. And so Ahab uh, goes home, and he does what every self-respecting man does. He, he lies on the couch, faces the wall, and pouts and won't eat anything. And his wicked wife comes up and says, what's the matter with you? And he says, Naboth won't let me buy his field so I can plant a garden. He said it just like that. It's in the Hebrew. <laughs> and his wicked wife says, well, that's easy. I'll get you your land. And so she writes a letter on his behalf, forges it, sends it out to the area where Naboth lives, tells the people to call together for a, a meeting. And she instructs two good-for-nothing, wicked men to sit across from Naboth and in public to accuse him of blasphemy, to accuse him of rebellion. And these two people do exactly that. And it's done in public. And you've got your two witnesses. And an innocent man is dragged out and stoned to death. All this guy did was say no when a person wanted to abuse their authority and take something that belonged to him. That's all he did wrong. And you want to believe that the story ends with Naboth being miraculously rescued. He, some, somebody steps in and says, no, it isn't true. But no one does. He dies. People pick up stones and they hurl them at him. And he gets hit with stones until he dies. And he's innocent. There's another example that is equally powerful, and it's that of Zechariah. We get that in 2 Chronicles 24. And in this case, Zechariah is trying to minister to the people as a priest, as God has called him to do, in the shadow of his father, who was very influential. And because he reports something to the king that the king doesn't like, once again, he finds himself in a position where he is on the outs. He's in a position where he is going to be accused and if you want to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 24, it's one of the most fascinating sections in the entire Old Testament. Beginning in verse 20, then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah, Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people. He said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And they conspired against him. And by commandment of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. An innocent priest stoned to death in the very courtyard of God's temple 
after delivering a clear word from him to his own people. Innocent people die. And what's so interesting is that when Zechariah is dying, he says, not out of hate and spite, but out of a sense of justice, he calls out clearly, may Yahweh see and avenge. These people show no respect for the Father. They kill the Son, and the Son says, may the Lord see and avenge. And the closest parallel that we have in the New Testament would be that of Jesus and of Stephen. You'll recall Stephen, when he was being killed, stoned, looks up to heaven. It is opened, the Lord standing at the right hand of God. And he does not say, remember and avenge. He says, Father, forgive them. And who does he get that from? He gets that from the Lord Jesus himself. You see, wicked men also conspired against him. Wicked men also disregarded the Father. Wicked men also hated the Son. Wicked men trumped up charges against Jesus. And as he is hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because God was seeing and avenging. At the same time, he is saying, Father, forgive them. The Father is avenging the very injustice of the crucifixion of Jesus as he pours his wrath upon Jesus. You see, that's why going forward, when he says to them, there's a new covenant in my blood, it's in that blood that is splattered on us, that blood that indicates his sacrifice for us. He can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, because the Father has seen and avenged on the cross. It only takes two witnesses for somebody to come under condemnation. And so, when you look at these parallels... I want you to see that one reminds us of the justice of God in His judgment, and the other reminds us of the justice of God in His atonement. And it is that reason that you can actually do what the Apostle John says to us in 1 John 1, 9, and that is to confess our sin, acknowledge it, agree with the Lord about it, knowing that He is both faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can't be... That doesn't make any sense. He can't be. That verse makes no sense. You can't be faithful and just. You can't. Because justice requires punishment. Faithfulness to forgive and faithful to judge can't work together unless, unless, unless somehow God did both. And that's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? He can be faithful to forgive because he is not just absolving us. He is not just pardoning us or letting us off the hook. He is faithful to forgive because he was faithful to pay that entire price himself through the atoning work of his son. That is something you can never lose sight of. I would argue that it is better to struggle with your confidence in the promise of forgiveness than to the, neglect the author, offer of forgiveness because you're confident that you don't need it. It's better to struggle with your confidence in the promise of forgiveness because it is hard to believe sometimes than to the neglect the offer of forgiveness because you're confident that you don't need it. 
because you've got your own self-righteousness based on your own criteria, based on your own strength. If the Mosaic law, which was intended to keep you in the right standing before God, was able to do that, and it would judge you if you refuse to hold on to it, how much more, notice the text, will that be the case for those who reject the gospel of Christ? That's the parallel. See, if that life preserver is thrown out to you in terms of holding on to and believing the gospel, and you don't accept it, you don't receive it, you don't hold on to it, you don't cling to it, but as a matter of fact, you trample it underfoot, if merely rejecting the law of Moses was enough to have you condemned, how much more so will rejecting the offer of salvation lead to your judgment? How much more so will rejecting the offer of Christ, who came to fulfill the law completely, who came to do things with all righteousness, who, who came to pay the penalty in full, in this new covenant relationship, if you reject that, that's why there's no hope for you. It's not because you had your salvation and you lost it. It's because you are indicating that you don't understand the need for salvation. You can't survive the coming judgment of God without protection. You need to be rescued. You must be in Him and sheltered by Him. And the imagery here is of somebody who doesn't believe the warning. The imagery here is of somebody who, who tramples underfoot the Son of God. I don't believe that every person who does that does it with some cold, malicious intent to humiliate Christ. Because you can do the same thing by simply ignoring it by simply not believing it, by simply becoming too familiar with it, by, by really just saying, I, I, I'll believe that later. That's just as much trampling it. That's just as much ignoring the warning. Now, I'm going to do something that I almost never do, and I, and I usually advise other preachers not do it, but it's so uh, poignant that I, I think it's helpful. It's probably like a, a story you've already heard, but Pretend you've never heard this before. The New Yorker, November 12th, 1938, there was this little clip. Quote, a man on Long Island satisfied a lifelong ambition by ordering an expensive barometer from Abercrombie & Fitch. It arrived in the morning of September 21st. He unwrapped it and was disgusted to find the needle stuck at Hurricane. After shaking it in a vain attempt to start it working again, he sat down and wrote a sharp letter to A and F and went right out to mail it back. And when he returned, his house was gone and the barometer with it. Now, I know you've probably heard that story before. That's because it's really good. Imagine that. The guy gets the expensive barometer, and it's stuck at Hurricane. And so he goes off to send a letter to the company to complain about it. He comes back home. Long Island's gone. Now, in those days, you didn't get an update on your phone. If you weren't there, you didn't know what happened. What was it doing? It was warning. It was right there in his face. He had paid up for a good product, and it was warning him. He ignored it. To his own peril. That's the idea of the person who hears this message over and over again and ignores it. They become deaf to it. 
Therefore, one of the reasons why a church functions in a healthy way like this is to remind us constantly of the warnings that come, lest we be those who think that there's always going to be time to act later. And now the third, and that is to reassure you, to remind, to rescue, and to reassure. Look at verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days, he says, when after you were enlightened, which means to understand the good news of the gospel, and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Dear Christian, being a Christian means being willing to let it all go. Being a Christian means deciding now, before the persecution starts, what you're going to think about it, and that you're going to think rightly. Persecution is both direct and indirect. Christ says, if you're going to be my follower, you should expect to be persecuted. There's no indication that you're going to be rescued from it. As a matter of fact, he says the opposite, to prepare for it, to expect it. Just like Naboth, just like Zechariah, there, there is no guarantee that anyone is going to come to your rescue before injustice has its way. And what the author is saying here is that in the midst of this imminent persecution that they were facing, they had to be prepared to let their stuff go, because ultimately their reward was much greater than anything they gave up here. It's a similar philosophy to what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. It's a very complicated story if we were to get into it all, and there's so much more I would love to say about it, but just allow me to remind you of the very end when he says to go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and your reward will be great in heaven. He doesn't say just give everything that you have to the poor, remain poor yourself, and there won't be anything for you at the back end. He says exchange it, that which is temporal for that which is eternal. Now, it wasn't like that work would have saved the man anyway, but the point being, Jesus isn't saying just give up everything and be poor. He says there's an exchange happening, and that's exactly what the author is reminding them of here. The first type of persecution is direct persecution. It happens to you. The indirect persecution happens to someone you know or love. And in both cases, the believer is called by God to see that it's ultimately coming from him, from his sovereign and good hand and to see that the reward far outweighs the cost. Now, it's easy for us to talk about that because we've never known persecution. We've never known what it is like to not forsake assembling together because assembling together meant being identified, which meant being persecuted. We don't know what that's like. Nobody right now is taking down your name and identifying you for being here today so that they can persecute you this week. And yet in the context of what's being written, that's exactly what was happening. These poor, beleaguered people were gathering together to worship God in obedience to Him. And as a consequence, they were being singled out, they were being known, they were exposed. And subsequent to that, they were having to pay the price, either by being sent to prison themselves, or by having to care for their friends who were in prison. And in those days, they didn't feed you. If you didn't have people bring the food to you, you just died. And they had to go and they had to look after the people. They had to identify with them. They had to realize, or they had to be seen as Christians. And there was a cost to them. And while they were gone, and while they had been marked out, and since nobody was there to protect them, 
people would come and plunder their houses. And it says here that they received that plundering joyfully. Can we say that? We, we can't even receive being taxed joyfully. Forget being plundered. And, and I'm serious. We, we don't have a category for that. I believe we will get one if it happens to us. I believe the Spirit of God will give us that ability. Just like when persecution comes, he'll give it to us. It's hard for us to imagine what that's like because we don't have a context for it now. But just think about your property. Think of what you do to protect your own property, how, how valuable your property is to you. And these people had it plundered. And the only reason they had it plundered and they were joyful about it was because they knew that there was a greater reward waiting for them. There was a greater reward waiting for them. Just like the other man. It's not just about, hey, my stuff got stolen. Isn't this great? It's that this is just temporal stuff anyway. And I know the reward is great in heaven. And so therefore, he says in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Rewards come at the end. Confidence carries us on to the reward. Uh, brothers and sisters, can I just make an observation here? I, I think that we're a Christian culture that is obsessed with rewards along the way. I think we are a Christian culture that's obsessed with rewards along the way, with incremental awards. We get an award every time we get to a certain checkpoint. I mean, how many parents are consumed with anxiety over the under-rewarded child? I mean, forget the old helicopter parent thing. Now they call them snowplow parents. <laughs> Get out ahead of the kid and plow down any obstacle that might be in the kid's way and reward them all the time. Always a reward, always a celebration. I mean, look, here we've got preschool graduation for crying out loud. Really? I mean, think of all the incentive reward-based kids programs and clubs out there. I mean, how many parents would stop sending their kids to things if they didn't get a reward for, like, attendance? I mean, is it the character and the content you're trying to build or the, or the trophy case? You take all that stuff away, you're left with what it was like in the old days, which is basically a catechism where you learned something, and I think we were all probably better off. Is there any surprise that simple instruction and repetition has survived for hundreds of years and trained up a generation that actually understood the meaning of the Scriptures in context, and they knew theology, and they were grounded, and they were rooted, even if they were illiterate? Because knowledge and truth was brought into them so that they understood what the Scriptures really meant. Don't throw away your confidence. There's going to be a reward, but it's going to cost you now. But the cost is, is fractional compared to the reward on the other side. The investment is minimal compared to the harvest you're going to reap at the end. Real knowledge, real commitment leads to confidence, which ties you to the mast until you get past all the siren call to rest now in some sort of counterfeit Canaan. 
May we be a church that's like strong enough so that when the persecution comes, we're not shocked, scrambling to catch up, but rather able to receive with joy whatever comes our way because we've already been instructed and prepared and we're ready. Press on in the face of the resentment you feel because you know that reward is coming. But now the path is hard and you need some encouragement. And so the writer continues in verse 36. For you, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> the author continues then in verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Who? Us? No. Them. We have to fabricate situations in which we can somehow justify the need for endurance. They really needed it. They needed it. Who's, who's, the, who's the you? The you is them. You, you people, you Hebrew Jewish believers, maybe in Rome experiencing persecution, you need endurance. So that, underline it as a purpose clause, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He says that I want you to do God's will. I want you to pursue holiness. I want you to be bold and courageous. I want your confidence to shine. We're going to spend the next three or four weeks wrapping up the book of Hebrews where the argument that the author will make is that faith, hope, and love ought to define a genuine Christian, especially when persecution is happening. And so the author is saying, I want you to endure so that you will accomplish the will of God. And if I could add just briefly, in 1 Peter chapter 4, I think it's verse 19, he says that sometimes you must suffer according to the will of God. And we trip over that because I do believe that, again, in our culture, many of us seem to think that God's will equals my happiness. So, so when people say, I'm, I'm seeking God's will, what they could just as honestly be saying is, I'm really seeking my happiness. I'm seeking a church where I'm happy and has all the things that I want and a job that I'm fulfilled at and a relationship that is meeting all of my needs, and therefore I'm looking for God's will. Because God's will, when I found it, must be something really, really enjoyable. Because His will and my happiness, you know, they just go hand in glove. And yet here, Peter, also writing to persecuted believers scattered over the Roman Empire, says to them that you might suffer according to God's will. It might be His will that you suffer. But when you do, you entrust your soul to a faithful Creator while doing good. He says that's the will of God. That's the will of God. So, how does that parallel with what the writer to the Hebrews is saying? Well, I think perfectly so. He says after you have done the will of God and you have suffered, you will receive what is promised. For verse 37, quoting Isaiah 26, 20 and Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4, reaches back again into the Old Covenant and pulls out these truths from the prophets. The author says, quoting, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. He says, he is coming. He won't delay. He is righteous. He is the judge. And those who are righteous like him and have his righteousness will live by faith. By the faith they place in him. But the one who shrinks back, the one who walks away, the one who crumbles under pressure, 
the one who proves to be that vine that is withering under the persecution is the one who is not in him, and no pleasure will be found in him. May I just add briefly, friends, that Peter himself failed on more than one occasion. Peter himself knows what it is like to have his faith fail, and yet in God's mercy, he was drawn back into repentance and confession, and he was restored. So don't think that it's a a once-and-for-all situation. If you do fail, you do stumble. God will not extinguish that smoldering wick. He he will not crush that bruised reed. He says that if you come to me, you will receive the, the forgiveness and the restoration that you're longing for. But as a general rule, the author is saying that those who just outright reject and no longer live by faith in the one that has said he will save them are the ones that he will not take pleasure in. And so verse 39 wraps up this whole section. However, you could say, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but strongest contrast possible of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see, a perfect church is a Christ church, and Christ's church is built on faith and hope and love. And so we begin here with a call to worship. That worship is directed towards the one who has all the power and all the virtue. And the power comes from his position and the virtue comes from his character. And since God is the supreme authority in all of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, and his character is perfect love, we celebrate the love of God. We sing about the love of God. We preach about the love of God. We remind one another that faith in Christ preserves your soul and that it is the love of God that extends from us to each other. Brothers and sisters, just contrast that with the person I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, with that person who goes to church or goes to worship where sin is the only focus, where all it does is reinforce God's character of judgment, where the value is centered on the unworthiness of the worshiper, where worship is really worshiping the fact that God will one day judge and bring wrath down. The call to worship is usually not a call to worship, but a call to repent. A call to repent in dust and ashes and shame and whatever else you can do to prove you really, really mean it. So what's the better response to the reality of the indwelling and persistent presence of the Holy Spirit? It is to look inside and to say, yes, I am wretched, but I've been made new. I am still in this sinful flesh and it fails me, but... I know one day there will be a resurrection and all will be made right. What do I do about those who seem to have a deep assurance but no real conviction? Those who seem to think that because of their own self-righteousness or because of God's indiscriminate love that they will be able to just do whatever they want and they seem to have no fear. I think that a good answer to that would come from J.C. Ryle. He says this, and I think it's appropriate as a conclusion. He says, I I frankly allow that there are some presumptuous persons who profess to feel a confidence for which they have no scriptural warrant. There always are some people who think well of themselves when God thinks ill, just as there are some who think ill of themselves when God thinks well. There always will be such. There never yet was a scriptural truth without abuses and counterfeits. God's election, man's impotence, Salvation by grace. All are alike abused. There will be fancies and enthusiasts 
as long as the world stands. But for all this, assurance is real, sober, and a true thing. And God's children must not let themselves be driven from the use of a truth merely because it is abused. Amen? Father, we thank you for that truth. For that truth that we can remind one another of. For the truth that rescues us. And for the magnificent parade of truths that pass before us upon even the simplest contemplation of your grace and redemptive history. The treasure, the storehouse of riches that that assurance brings to us. The confidence that not if, but when your church is again persecuted, even in this country, that you will have trained up your people to receive that in a way that doesn't dishonor you by suggesting it's not your will, that doesn't disrespect you as the sovereign king of the universe, and that doesn't disregard you as the source of all hope and assurance. Oh, Father, be preparing this church, this precious local church, for that day. And should you choose to draw us to yourself before we experience such a thing, may our preparation not have been in vain, but may it have served to deepen the assurance we have in our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.